Hello, this is Who Cares, and this is the first official full-length episode. I am your host, Melinda, and on this podcast, I and all of my guests talk about a topic of that guest's choosing, and we delve into that topic at whatever level uh, we possibly can and uh, develop conversations about it. And I am so proud that my first guest is the very interesting and also my best friend, Adam McGill. Hi. Hello. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. I'm so happy to have you. So what are we talking about today? Adam, what is your topic? Uh, so today I've, I've brought in for my topic the personal life of Franz Kafka. Excellent. I, I want to ask you, I, I had a great time delving into this topic. My knowledge of Kafka initially was more literary, as I feel like most people are. I knew sort of the, the main gloss of his personal life, and especially his romantic life. But what is it in particular about this topic, sort of the personal life of Kafka and the nature of his, not only his personal approach to to many things, but also particularly his sort of communication style within his personal life that has fascinated you over time. How'd you get how'd you get onto this kick? It's a really deep question. Can I actually start off just by just by sharing something with you? A quote. Oh please. We love a structured talk. I know you do. <laughs> this is from a letter that was written by a woman named Milena Yasenska, who Kafka exchanged a, just a, a staggering number of letters with over the course of largely in 1920 and then and then also uh, until the until his death she's writing to Kafka's best friend a man named Max Broad who famously the way most people know who Max Broad is is that very famously Kafka told him to burn everything of his that hadn't been published yet all right. of his journals and, and diaries and and manuscripts and um, and then he he didn't he pu- yeah. instead he he, he published them um, and that's the reason that we we have all of these all of these letters and things that's correct and these letters are available for publication all the ones that exist in a volume they right. are uh, his letters to Felice Bauer have been published, and mm-hmm. as well as his letters to Milena Yasenska. So this is after their relationship ended. It didn't so much end as peter out, but she's talking about Max Broad had evidently written her a letter asking why Kafka seems to be afraid of love but not life, and she says. Your your letter would take days and nights to answer, but I think it's something else. Life for him is something entirely different than for all other human beings. In particular, things like money, the stock market, currency exchange, a typewriter are utterly mystical to him. They're the strangest riddles, and his approach to them is completely different than our own. Were you ever in a post office with him? After he composes a telegram and picks out whatever little counter he likes, shaking his head, He then drifts from one counter to another without the slightest idea to what end or why until he finally stumbles on the right one. And when he pays and receives change, he counts it, only to discover one krona too many. And so he gives one back to the girl behind the counter. Then he walks away slowly, counts once again, and in the middle of descending to the last staircase, he realizes that the missing krona belongs to him after all. So there you stand next to him at a loss while he shifts his weight from one foot to the other, wondering what to do. Going back is difficult. Upstairs, there's a crowd of people pushing and shoving. So just let it go, I say. 
He looks at me, completely horrified. How can you let it go? Now, not that he's sorry about the krona, but it's not good. There's one krona missing. How can you forget about something like that? He spoke about it for a long time and was very dissatisfied with me. And this repeated itself with different variations in every shop, in every restaurant, in front of every beggar. Once he gave a beggar a two krona piece and wanted one back, she said she didn't have anything. We stood there for a good two minutes thinking about how to deal with the matter. Then it occurred to him that he could leave her the two krona, but no sooner had he taken a few steps when he started getting very cross. Of course, this same man would be eager and extremely happy to give me 20,000 krona with no questions asked. On the other hand, if I were to ask him for 20,000 and one krona and we had to change money somewhere and didn't know where, he would seriously consider what to do with the one krona I hadn't been allotted. So I get a very distinct impression of the kind of person that that is describing. What's your general impression? I think my answer is influenced not only by that context that you've just shared, but also by the context that I've built up around the sort of pre-existing knowledge that I have of secondhand account of Kafka as well. I get the impression that it's somebody whose personal fixation or whose personal impressions of themselves on any given day and how they relate to the world entirely override or are entirely overtaken or entirely overtake, I guess, or entirely override like any kind of gold standard of like regular interaction, whatever regular means. But I think just, I think with regular interaction, there's a lot of give and take. There's a lot of assumption and there's a lot that you have to read into in terms of being able to let things go or being able to anticipate certain reactions. And it seems to me as though this was a person where if any part of the whole of his body or he was not down for that kind of anticipation that that he wasn't able to do it. It strikes me, I, I say this as a, as a non-neurotypical person, mm-hmm. as someone who is instantly recognizable to me as non-neurotypical. Yeah, I, you know, and that's an interesting thing. And I wondered when we were going to get into this topic, because yeah. I also am an, I'm a non-neurotypical person. And part of the manifestation of that has always been that I struggle with this incessant personal anxiety that doesn't necessarily affect that I think affects the least my ability to interact in a general sense. It's only mm-hmm. with specifics that I feel very anxious. And I sort of wondered when we were going to get into that, because one of the things that I worry a lot about as somebody who has had experiences where my social skills have felt very affected or where I feel very like low key, well, I feel very high key self-conscious about whether or not I've done something wrong or if I've misread a situation, but oftentimes nobody else can tell. And also really certainly nobody cares. I often feel very leery about like empathizing with somebody's purported difficulties like that I hear about as being like oh that sounds you know what I mean because and I don't even know if I'm coherent right now because I mean the long and the short of it is I agree with you but I also think that the idea of a neurotypical interaction is so like touch and go especially if you know you have your own anxieties or you have certain things that affect you I think that everybody has moments of you know neurodiversity I think everybody has moments or difficulties and I think so the sort of panoply of regular interactions I think it's just kind of a numbers game Mm -hmm. (laughs) sometimes of like if you struggle with this every moment then sure you're going to be classified as neurotypical and if you struggle with it somewhat 
you know, it could, it's kind of a roll of the dice, but I often feel kind of self-conscious about identifying too strongly with somebody and being like, oh yeah, that sounds like something I understand because I always don't ever want to say that I understand something. Mm -hmm. I'm happy that you said that because I think your observation is very valid and I think it validates some of my thoughts as well because I think I'm more reluctant to hear about these fixations and classify them as something sort of identifiably neuroatypical. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, tricky, right? Like, yeah. I, I'm certainly not qualified to diagnose anyone of anything, let alone people from history who, you know, predate the the invention of those, those diagnoses. Yeah. But I think it's striking that I, I've done a I've done a lot of reading about Kafka. The 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 second I I started to when I when I started to dip my toe into the water, he captured ways in which the world is scary and unknowable that no one had really come close to before. Like things that that are so subtle and hard to pin down that in order to to describe them you either have to read his his work or you have to fall back on a on a term like kafkaesque which doesn't really mean anything but is an approximation and it's that specificity his ability to capture his own feeling but also make it it registers to i i i think i'm i'm losing sight of my my point a little bit but it it registers as relatable it's the yes. it's the way to paint an empathetic picture of an absurd or a out of the way situation that captures a feeling and i i often identify with that as well as so you can capture the feeling mm-hmm. that you are feeling internally but you are able to create the feeling through imagery or through narrative as a way to describe the feeling to others in a way that they can imagine that state of mind which they only may be able to do through extending themselves into these macabre or grotesque situations, then you've created this empathetic connection between a feeling created by an impression and a feeling created by a fantasy. Yeah. So the second that I realized how strongly I identified with his body of work, you know, you do a lot of work in early modern plays and and literature. So I, I know, and I know that we've had conversations around people extrapolating from Shakespeare, personal details about his life from his work. Yeah, I just did a mini-sode on that, by the way. Yeah, it can be a frustrating way to approach the work of a person. But the thing about Kafka is that it's kind of impossible not to. Right. And, and you know, that's something that struck me or that has struck me in sort of renewing my research of this topic in preparation for this podcast is so many people want to or try to in whatever way, sort of diagnose Kafka with stuff, with with identifiable things, sort of after his death. Like they, they use his legacy, his body of work, rather than his living body to sort of diagnose him with, you know, these potential conditions. And I think, you know, an actual diagnosis when you're living can be nice because it can contextualize a lot of things for you. But it's kind of pointless, in my opinion, to try and diagnose somebody after their death, especially if you're using their work as an insight into their mind, because, and you, you know, anybody may, may disagree, but I think at that point, all you have 
is the work or you have work or you have personal correspondence. And so at that point, I think it's almost more exciting to let that part go and explore the work from an interpretive standpoint rather than from a standpoint of like trying to find like comorbidities or symptoms or or pathology that you can attribute through the work. I mean, even reading Wikipedia about Kafka, you get these type A like schizoid disorders and, you know, yeah. You know, and depression and anxiety and like sexual repression, which I'm sure we'll get into because yeah. I have I have beef with that, but like sexual repression, but also at the same time, like sexual, like pathology, like, you know, how can you be, you know, sort of austere, but also far too interested in sex, right? You know, and I'm also seeing like borderline personality disorder and all of these potential diagnoses when in reality, you know, we'll never know. And that's okay. Yeah. And while speculating is part of the fun, I think it's very difficult. It can become very difficult to then sort of equate this body of work and even personal correspondence with any sort of one thing. Well, it's it's so tricky because the thing that makes him, in my opinion, such a powerful writer is his superpower is being really, really good at knowing how Franz Kafka felt. Yeah. And being really, really good at describing that feeling. Yeah. He's quoted as saying, the pen is only a seismographic pencil for the heart. I think that kind of insight and empathy is really beautiful. And and I think that goes back to your point before about how the, the things that are Kafka-esque are really just described, I think, I think in my opinion in my opinion, and I'll, I'll float this out to you, is the Kafka-esque can be described then as our ability or one's ability through time and space to empathize with Franz Kafka. Uh-huh. Yeah, I think that's a really, really good description of it. His work has, because his work is, is clearly so close to his own personal life, it has created a lot of confusion about what that personal life consisted of. As you've alluded to already, the sort of sexual undertones of his work. He's either considered completely asexual or like the world's greatest pervert. Yes, really. (laughs) I think that that doesn't allow for really the, the scope of human sexuality as it exists now and as it existed in a much less liberated time how can you say that kafka was repressed was sexually repressed when everybody was in some ways sexually repressed in that moment that brings to mind some notes that i took um that i got from open culture which is basically examining this was about kafka's love letters this is a article with research primarily attributed to kakatani but also there's other stuff too but the article attributes a lack of eroticism overt eroticism in his work as like a potential indication in his real life of like a lack of sexual or romantic inclination meaning like that's why he never sealed the deal with any of the women that he wanted to marry or any of the women with whom he was in a relationship yeah but then you know you have people like Stanley Korngold, who is a professor of of German literature, referring to the judgment Mm -hmm. as one of the most highly erotic. (laughs) Yes. And you agree with this as one of the, you know, you agree with this classification of Kafka. It refers to the judgment as one of the most highly erotic pieces of literature that exist, you know, from that period and attributes Kafka, you know, attributes to Kafka a high level of eroticism and sexuality that did appear not only in his life, but was reflected in the work itself. 
boy. Okay, so let's, yeah, let's let's get into it. The first time that I read The Trial, I think it was one of the first books of his that I read. It was certainly the first novel of his that I read. I think I read The Metamorphosis first. But when I read The Trial, I was shaken by how deeply horny it is. And I think that that comes as a surprise to people who aren't familiar with the actual facets of Kafka's life. And one thing that you have to know about the judgment, one thing that makes the judgment really interesting is that the judgment is this story of of a, a young man goes to his father and says, I'm about to be married. And, and his father says, his father basically goes crazy and jumps up on his on his bed and says, I, I condemn you to, to death. The man runs out of the house and jumps off of a bridge. And the last line is something like, in that moment, the traffic was streaming endlessly over the bridge. And in, in, in German, it's a, a very clear allusion, much clearer than it is in English, to the, uh, the traffic is sort of ejaculating over the bridge. Yeah. The important context is that The Judgment was written in 1912, and Kafka was on the cusp of publishing his first book. It was called Contemplations, or sometimes translated as Meditations. It's being published by his best friend, Max Broad. And Max and Kafka were like, just imagine just like a couple of lads who are, they're young. Mad lad. They're honestly pretty (laughs) mad. They are young men. You know, Kafka's nearly 30. They're not quite so young anymore, but they are going out every night. They're hitting up brothels together. And Kafka's got this book that is about to be published. He's sort of at the cusp of something really important. And Max is about to get married. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of the shit hitting the fan for him of like, my buddy's about to, I'm about to lose my, like my party buddy. And then on top of that, there's this evening that he spends at Max Broad's house and he meets this woman, Felice Bauer. Yeah, this is a year later, I believe in 1930. Uh, This is 1912. uh, Meditation is published in in 1913 but he meets felice bauer in 1912 kafka and brad have just returned from this trip that they took together to weimar it's kind of like one last hurrah before broad gets married my point in saying all of this is just like all of this is kind of going on in kafka's head and we actually know what was going on in kafka's head because he kept really extensive diaries he did this period of time and so we know how anxious he felt about this book being published. Mm-hmm. Meditations, by the way, it's it's all of his early early writings, which are not great. Yeah, there. Have you read Have you read any of any of those stories? I've read a few of them. I did not reread them for the purposes of this research, but I remember that they are. I don't know. I would. They're like page length aphorisms. Yeah, they're a little unfo- I, they're a little unfocused. They're unfocused. And Kafka was very conscious of this fact, and he really struggled <laughs> to put together for his publisher more than 31 pages. And yeah. eventually what they had to do at his request, at, at, at Kafka's own request, was blow the font up so huge that you know you could actually like leaf through this book and and not feel like you were reading up like a pamphlet. This is so relatable. I know. <laughs> it's 
deeply, deeply relatable. Yeah. So he's trying to pull together material for this book and he goes to this dinner party and he, he meets this this woman and they apparently kind of hit it off right away. At one point in the evening, Kafka demands that she accompany him to Palestine the next year. And I think this is really telling about the kind of person that Felice Bauer was is she's like, yeah, all right, cool. Let's go to let's go to Palestine. Mm-hmm. And they they never did, by the way. He kept making plans to to travel to to Palestine and and never actually never actually made it. Immediately he starts sending her letters, and it's like something clicks in his brain. He's been journaling a lot, but it's as if being able to externalize his feelings to another person lets him access a part of his brain where that is possible to do in fiction. Two days after they start exchanging letters, he writes The Judgment. Mm-hmm. He writes it in in one 10-hour writing session. He says in his diary, only in this way can writing be done, only with such coherence, with such a complete opening out of the body and soul. He says in the same entry, the story came out of me like a real birth covered with filth and slime. That's also very sexual. <laughs> it's, it is very sexual. It is. And within the next three months, he writes the first, I believe he'd already started writing it, but he writes f- the first five chapters of his book, America, or The Man Who Disappeared, which is his his love letter to Charles Dickens. Yeah. My God, like that association, Kafka's admiration, his empathetic reflection upon Dickens as a literary yeah. figure of inspiration. Oh man, that could be its own. Ooh, that could yep. be its own thing. My gosh. Yeah, truly. They're very similar. They're very similar people. They are very similar. And I I think that Dickens, Max Broad has a really interesting, his, he wrote, Max Broad wrote the first biography of Kafka. And Mm -hmm. in it, this idea of Kafka as dark and disturbing and, and, and gruesome, that idea had already taken hold and, and he uses this biography almost as an opportunity to, to tell people that's not who he was. No. That's what yeah. he wrote about. That's what his anxieties were. But the most important thing about his writing is a grasping outside of that, a grasping towards something full, filled with light. There's a really great quote, and I don't want to get off on too far a, a tangent. There's a quote from a fantastic book called Conversations with Kafka. It was written by a, a young Czech poet whose father discovered that he was writing poetry. So he brought it to his office and showed it to a coworker of his and was like, hey, is this any good? And his coworker, who was uh, Franz Kafka, said, yeah, this is this is pretty good. This is your son. Can I can I meet your son? And over the course, really until nearly the end of Kafka's life, him and this young man would go on walks together and just talk. Yeah. And uh, Gustav Yanush kept notes of all of their, all the conversations that they had and, uh, and then, and then published it. And it's a, a really incredible book. And it's actually probably the first book that I read that was 
about Kafka as a as a person, and it, it really sort of spurred my interest in in all of this. Yeah, it's really fascinating, and and I think also you know sort of bringing it back to the topic. I think similarly to the way that I think of Dick Dickens. Yeah, what he shared with people really depended on. It seems to me, yeah, my impression is what he shared with people and now getting back into the intimacy of friendship versus the intimacy of, of, you know, love interest. There's a sense of reserve that I think fascinates a lot of people and sort of contributes to this idea of like the continuing mystery of like the Kafka-esque is a sense of reservation that I see from his correspondence, particularly with women and particularly, you know, at the beginning with Felice Bauer of holding back on a per, in a personal sense, having a lot of personal reservations, but being very sort of privately inspired. Yeah. There's a quote that you reminded me of that you shared with me in, in the sort of one sort of pre-note conversation that we had about this that Milena said in reference to Kafka talking about Felice, where she says, if you ask him why he loved his first fiance, he says she was so efficient. <laughs> he dreams with admiration. And I think that not only is that a reflection of of Felice's character yeah. um, as the first, you know, real, true, you know, love of Kafka's life for a three-year period. I think it's the idea of the efficiency of like a steady and unencumbered person. And that means no, that's no disservice to Felice Bauer, who was a very interesting person, but she was very self, for all intents and purposes, from all indications, very self-assured and very confident in her own abilities the place in the world but the efficiency of being able to focus and use somebody else as sort of an empathetic springboard for the creation of this deeply insecure but very creative work that began at the outset of this relationship yeah and so to get back to our the narrative I'm, I'm sorry that i keep sort of leaping off into different things oh the quote that i wanted to share by the way is um that we look at the stars through a keyhole and so it's very important to keep the keyhole clean that's such a simultaneously dark and optimistic thing to say i think it shows his character also in that period of three months so he get, he's writing he's trying to write his his Dickens piece. He's trying to write America. And when he gets stuck writing this, he takes a break. And this is a, this is something that happens throughout his life where he will be working on a novel. He'll be working on America or the trial or the castle, none of which he ever finished. Mm -hmm. And he'll get stuck. Then he writes something incredible. Like when he realized that he wasn't capable of finishing America, he took a break and he wrote The Metamorphosis, which is a candidate for the greatest short story written in the 20th century, I think. Yeah. It changed writing. I don't know. The feeling that you get when reading that, that book, that story is like nothing else. I always considered that story as sort of a sort of a palatable in the broadest way possible, like a palatable entrance for the casual reader of short stories into German Expressionism. Yeah. It's like a primer for German Expressionism. Do you know, this is interesting that one of the things that I wish there was some confirmation of were the films that Kafka was able to see in his lifetime. Because we know that he was interested in film and therefore probably would have been exposed to some of the early films, some of the early films coming out of Germany. 
Mm-hmm. But I I wish there was some confirmation of that because it it feels like and other other people I'm not the first one to make this connection but his his writing feels the way that he writes movement and set pieces is like film yeah and is also like and this is another thing that was happening in 1912 is that he has been going to the Yiddish theater. Yeah. And the Yiddish theater, so the Yiddish theater in, at that time in Austro-Hungary, in, you know, the kingdom of Bohemia was, there was a Yiddish theater that was happening in New York that was very established Mm -hmm. uh, within those communities, within Yiddish, within Jewish communities. And you would go into a proper theater and, you know, sit down and, and, and watch these, watch these, watch things like the Dybbuk. It was much more hodgepodge and it was much more cobbled together. It was more like a troupe of actors in Prague at the time. It was, it was more, and, you know, the empire at the time, it was, yeah. it was like a troupe of actors came through and set up curtains in a cafe somewhere. Mm-hmm. And Yiddish was actually illegal to speak at the at the time. This is actually something I think the question of language we can get into now if you want because it's sure. it's very interesting. But Kafka of course was a German speaking Jew who lived in what was at the time the kingdom of Bohemia in uh, in in Prague in the kingdom of Bohemia mm-hmm. part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire where most people in the country spoke Czech. Most people in Prague spoke Czech. Yeah. But there was a population of German-speaking Jews and German speakers in general mm-hmm. who were sort of considered outsiders. And it becomes very interesting, especially when you consider that in 1918, Czechoslovakia, at the end of the war, Czechoslovakia becomes a country. Mm-hmm. And suddenly these German-speaking Jews start to feel that they are very unwelcome. That's a whole other conversation. That is a whole other conversation because they're, you know, as is sort of, I'm just saying this stuff and I appreciate that you are too, because I, part of this is I want to encourage if any of this is of interest to you to do your, your own research, but you know, there's this really haunting legacy as well. I know you're talking about World War One, mm-hmm. but but there is also this really haunting legacy and parallel to be drawn from the fact that many of, of Kafka's family and associates from this time, um, you know, he did not live past the 20s, but many of Kafka's associates and family did not survive World War II. Many of them were yeah. killed and died in either in concentration camps or as a result of the Nazis taking over all of this territory and, and you know, as a direct result of persecution. Yeah. You know, I think that also from where I have looked and from what I have seen in terms of literary criticism and sort of the the introspection into the life of Kafka, because he did not live into the 1930s, I don't see a whole lot of this sort of legacy of reflection talking about the fact that so many of his close family and friends, you know, didn't make it past the 40s. Sometimes I do, but I wonder about how that has affected everybody's sort of critical ability to try to put Kafka together, knowing that many of the people who knew him best were, even if they had been able to give an impression of his character, contribute to the post-World War II uh, scholarship of Kafka, um, were not able to do that. So there's this there's this sort of legacy of sort of this haunting legacy of, of the impression of him sort of being cut short or revealed only through these certain lenses that survive yeah well certainly i think i think we'll want to wrap 
back around to that because Milena Yasenska uh, yep. was ended up in in Ravensbrück. Yes. So he was going to the Yiddish theater often. Max Broad sort of introduced him. He was getting really interested in Zionism too and his own Jewish identity. It's where his desire to to visit Palestine came from. It also came from uh, a close friendship that he struck up with uh, the act, one of the actors, uh, Yitzhak Levy, whose letters, they exchanged a lot of letters as well, but they were destroyed by the, by the Nazis. Mm-hmm. Um, and Levy himself was, you know, as, as you alluded to a lot, like, like a lot of people in Kafka's life who survived into the thirties and forties, he was murdered in a concentration camp. Mm-hmm. This one really haunts me. The fact that there, his letters with Levy were were destroyed, yeah. Because their friendship was clearly very intense, mm-hmm. and I think seems to have been, from what survived, as rich as any of his love letters. There's not a lot of homoerotic overtones, I should say. There's not a lot of evidence that Kafka indulged in any of the homoerotic sort of feelings that there is evidence of in his in his work. Yeah. You know, this was clearly a very close relationship between these two men. And he also just clearly adored this theater company and this person. He encouraged, so I should add, Felice lived in Berlin and Kafka lived in Prague. Yeah. So imagine somebody in London corresponding with somebody in New York. It, mm-hmm. it is a relationship that is separated by a considerable distance. And she was only in Prague at the time visiting Max because they were yes. lightly related. Yes, they were. I think one of them was had a sister who was married to a cousin. I, I, yeah. I can't remember exactly the yeah. connection. But she was there at the house for that reason. Yeah. Marriage kind of permeates it from the start. Mm-hmm. where she's, I believe, there because of a link in marriage, because someone is, is, getting, is getting married or because of a marriage. And Max Broad is getting married. Mm-hmm. And also she has this correspondence with Kafka. And so the question is kind of unavoidable, like, where is this going? Mm-hmm. She's certainly not wrong to kind of believe that this was heading in that direction. And here's where it gets complicated because here's Kafka who is on the precipice of a literary breakthrough he's he's more focused on his work than he has ever been before in his life he's on the verge of being able to do what he has longed for his entire life which is to give up his day job working at an insurance company for factory accidents mm-hmm. uh, for workers I should say um, and become a writer full-time mm-hmm and at the same time, he's almost 30 years old. And in spite of the fact that he's, and he insists them hims- this himself, uh, remarkably young looking. Which is true. <laughs> it, 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 which, is, which is true. But it's, it's not going to escape notice for much longer that this is a grown man who yeah. is trying to live like a bachelor. Yes. The world of his extended adolescence is, is rapidly disappearing around him. Mm-hmm. And Marriage with Felice means children, and it essentially means an end to his solitude. And writing for Kafka is a solitary activity. Yeah. In reply to a letter which Felice writes, 
She says uh, something to the effect of, we belong together unconditionally. Kafka responds that he has no greater wish than that we should be bound together inseparably by the wrists of your left hand and my right hand. I don't know quite why this should occur to me, perhaps because a book on the French Revolution with contemporary accounts is lying in front of me, and it may be possible, after all, that a couple thus bound were once led to the scaffold. I'm so glad that you used that quote, because I think it really gives an insight into his his need for imagery to yeah. create an impression of feeling. But also, as I get older... And the window of my bachelorhood rapidly closes in around me. It's so interesting to me in reading, particularly about the letters that exist. And I, you know, I started with, you know, reading a lot of, I read a lot of criticism about the collection of letters between Felice Bauer and Franz Kafka, um, which took place primarily between 1913 and, and 1917, when their relationship ultimately ended. Uh, and again, most of it long distance. But uh, the fact that people make such a big deal in print about like how self-sufficient and steady Felice was and about how some people referred to Kafka's letters, love letters as Kafka-esque. This is again attributed to Kakatani, but some people refer to them as romantic. Maria Popova of Brain Pickings um, refers to the letters as beautiful and haunting. Some other thing I, I said like, oh, you know, somebody said something, there's something uniquely contemporary about Kafka's use of letters to sort of create intimacy and distance at the same time, which is what I'm getting at here. Yeah. As I enter the the twilight of my bachelorhood or whatever, I just mean in terms of age, like as I get older and I can take less shit, I'm so surprised at the level of uh, observation that these letters get as like, oh, Felice Bauer was so good for Kafka. Like she was so indulgent of his little, his little tricks and tantrums and all this. But all I can see is that for four years, this was a man who wrote to this woman multiple times a day. Yes. Where he obsessed over the nature of their relationship, although he kind of tried to forbid her from, while all the while obsessing over the nature of their relationship and what it meant and creating the sort of imagery for the stranglehold he felt the relationship taking on his creativity. He was like pushing her towards commitment and demanding from her the sort of wholesome domestic idea of commitment all the while being like yes till death do us part because death is an imminent part of this kind of intimacy and uh, I know that I write to you 10 times a day but like uh, I've, uh, when you don't write to me I feel so bad <laughs> Am I writing to you too much? I don't care. And then like doing all and also pulling all this bullshit, like very early on in the relationship, he went to visit her in Berlin, told her he wasn't coming. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's all. It's a whole thing. Yeah. He told her then she, he wasn't. She, he told her he wasn't coming like two days before, went anyway, showed up. And then got pissy because he thought that everybody in her family and her friend group with whom they they associated for this entire stay after he said he wasn't coming because he thought that everybody was mad at him and he didn't like it. He didn't like being speculated upon. And then he was pissy for months after that, but continued to demand this super housewifey level of commitment from her over letters. By the way, she was also a successful career woman in her own right yes i mean you know she was she had it going on she was like you know helping to run all these these businesses over her career and she was quite successful even in spite of playing putting up with all this bullshit but just this idea of like the love 
I'm I'm fascinated that like I wonder how much of that is like a stale take that persists on how really smart women who appreciate or who understand certain things about certain people take nonsense from these like brilliant men quote unquote right and then all of this stuff is taken as like romantic that this kind of volatility and this kind of double standard is is continued to be taken as like either romantic or as an extension of his literary consciousness like we refer to these letters as kafka-esque when really what they are is like emotionally abusive creed that women just have to like take because kafka was like on the uptick you know what i yeah. mean interesting to me yeah the the letters are are really on negotiation where mm-hmm. he is trying to sort of take everything and and run with it and she is saying no you you can't some price must be paid for this intimacy yeah you 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 owe me something more than your i think screed is a really good word he would <laughs> interrogate her about yeah. what she was what she was eating what she what she what she did for a living what her schedule was like cuz he was obsessed with his own health and mm-hmm. his own diet. And he sort of foisted it on her. And I think she was very right to expect something in return, some sort of commitment in return. Yeah. And it's impossible to say what was going on in his head. But he try he does try very hard to scare her off, to say, I'm I'm only trying to show you exactly who I am so that you'll either realize that this is a mistake or you will be completely resolved to do this thing, right? Got it? Okay. And she says, oh, okay, I I get you, or I don't really understand what you're saying. And then he's like, well, it's, 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 it's fine then. It's, it's fine. But it's really hard to nail down exactly what he wants at any, at any time in the course of these letters, because I don't think he knows what he wants. I think his life is very confusing for him. And also another thing that I don't think can be underestimated is how much the world was changing at the time, very rapidly. There's so many ups and downs in, in this part. It's almost impossible to get into detail without getting really bogged down. But once an engagement actually becomes official and and things start moving towards the, okay this is this is happening we're we're engaged now his mother hires a detective agency in berlin to provide information about felice's reputation mm-hmm. which kafka reveals to her in a in a letter he describes the the document that entailed from this as elaborate and as gruesome as it is intensely funny he says we'll laugh about it one day God. And he would, right? Because yeah. that's his point of perspective. And it's also his sense of humor. Well, that's what else is fascinating to me is that I wonder to what degree the expectation of her, you know, the expect the, the sort of domestic and emotional labor that he expects from her, even in their correspondence, because they really did all of this. They had this four-year relationship, which for much of that was considered really an engagement. Really. Yes. They had much of it over correspondence. There wasn't really any point at which they joined together and really tried out, you know, what this sort of partnership would be like in person. It was all ideology. His parents found an apartment for them, which they they visited together. And that ended disastrously. 
mm-hmm. somehow. So they're in, more or less engaged up until September in 1913. He takes a trip to Vienna and then goes to northern Italy and he meets this a Swiss girl who he has an affair with and he immediately confesses it to her and she's clearly kind of like, I don't know what to do with you. Yeah. They stop corresponding for a little bit. And then at the end of October, she gets in touch with him. And so does her friend, Greta Block, who insists on coming to Prague to meet him to serve as a mediator. Uh huh. And then enter Greta Block, with whom Kafka starts corresponding. In the same way that he's been corresponding with, in the same way that he's been writing to Felice. Suddenly, he's like, who are you? What do you do? What's your diet like? (laughs) Yeah. What kind of books are you reading? And they, it, it goes through this whole rigmarole again. And it effectively becomes, he transfers his attachment with Felice onto this third party. Mm-hmm. which I think is really interesting. I, I want to be delicate here because there is an implication in a lot of work, particularly early work about Kafka, that Kafka was not remotely sexually interested in, in Felice Bauer. Right. That she that she was, in the first place, undesirable person. And I think this is kind of where his reputation as lacking a sense of eroticism comes from because his letters are kind of the furthest thing from erotic. What they are is, if anything, if there's any attachment to sort of relationship, they're they're domestic. They're focused on his preoccupation with domesticity. Yeah, which comes up in his work, the idea of pre-prescribed roles or existing within a society where The deviation from roles is disastrous, but also almost um, inevitable. Yeah, they demand to meet with him in Berlin, but I could be wrong about that. Mm -hmm. And he describes it in his journal as a tribunal. Yeah. Where he's brought in and they just sort of question him for what seems to have been hours and ask him about his intentions. And it it seems like she was able to, to tell him exactly the ways that that she'd been hurt over the course of this relationship and he is completely silent through the entire thing and then a while after that that happens i think in 1914 and not long after that he writes he starts writing the trial i don't think there is an excuse for that behavior and i think it's also a reflection just in that, I think the lack of eroticism is attributed to a lack of complexity in viewing sex. I think that when we conflate sex or sexuality with with what is erotic, I think it's when we sort of get into a danger of categorization because, like, clearly, like, the dude could fuck, like, right? Yeah. Like, he had a sexual life. And I think that I got heavy. I know that I said I don't like to do this, but I just can't help myself in thinking about my own relationship with, you know, neurodiversity and my own anxiety. I think there's a big difference potentially between enacting an impulse, like thinking of sexuality as an impulse or as something that is as an outlet that is available that doesn't carry a lot of emotional implication. And then the idea of making a commitment that involves sex, but is at its core much more complicated and much more multifaceted as being considered something that is almost exhaustingly complicated. Right. And not wanting to get something wrong wrong if you're not sure you can do it right right 
And the trial is about being persecuted, not for no reason, but because of who you are. Your, your personhood is on, is on trial. I think it's really interesting. There's a, there's a great film version of the trial directed by Orson Welles. Mm-hmm. And it stars Anthony Perkins. And whether this is fair or not, Orson Welles has said that he cast Anthony Perkins specifically because he was a closeted gay man. He said in an interview that he knew that Perkins would carry that that sense of persecution through in his performance. And I think that Kafka had this sense of being persecuted rightly. I don't think there's any question of that. I think he saw his own behavior as monstrous. I kind of hope that in the way that I hope that people are able to take accountability. Uh, Yeah, I do. I think that, at least I think that he saw some of it, if not every part of it. Yeah. Yeah. It's really hard to say. They're engaged a second time. I, I, I think his, his his work had really slowed down at that point. His ability to work had really slowed down at that point. And it was almost like, what else do I do at this point? The sort of the hump of my career is really over. What else is left for me to do except get married? This is also around the time, this is 1917. Yeah. And it's also around the time, I think, that he writes the letter to his father. He's really taking stock of his own life. Kafka wrote a book-length letter to his father addressing all of his grievances in really candid language. Yeah. It starts off, Dear Father, you asked me recently why I maintain that I'm afraid of you. As usual, I was unable to think of any answer to your question, partly for the reason that I am afraid of you, and partly because an explanation of the grounds for this fear would mean going into far more details than I could even approximately keep in my mind while talking. That's so relatable, by the way. Yeah. Like, that's a person who has so many thoughts in his head at any at any given time that he struggles with formulating answers to simple questions. Yeah. He's like, I, there's too many things to talk about when I talk in person. I have to, I have to write it out. I, I literally have to write it out. And even when I write it out, it's not going to be, it's not going to be complete. And he writes mm-hmm. this letter and he gives it to his, his mom. He's like, I think I'm going to give this to dad. And she says, don't, don't do it. This is a bad idea. Yeah. He seems to be at this period sort of going back through his life and thinking about his own dissatisfaction with his with his childhood. He clearly suffered during his childhood. I I know there's been sort of a a rethinking of who Herman Kafka his father was actually as a person and what sort of expectations he put on his son. For the turn of the century, he was a comparatively liberal and tolerant father. who indulged his son and gave him considerable support. I think that Herman Kafka would definitely agree with that. And I I think actually Franz Kafka would probably agree with that too. And that it is possible for that to be true. And also for there to be truth in the statement that Kafka felt oppressed by their relationship. I also think that tension, and again, I mean, I keep going back to this lens of like relatable anxiety, right? I think that there can be a lot of tension between feeling judged, even when you have support. And that 
type of fear. And I mean, a pervasive thing was throughout Kafka's life, regardless of his the stability of his career as a writer or his, you know, romantic or or friendship situation, he was on record, terrified constantly that people were not only judging him in the moment, in, in whatever state that he happened to be in. It was a level of scrutiny that was insurmountable. Yeah, and there's a story that he tells in the letter about being a young boy and yelling, sort of crying uh, for, I, th I think he's asking for a glass of water. He's not able, he's, he's unable to fall asleep. And so he's sort of crying for a glass of water. And he's, he, he admits in the letter, he says, I, th I think that I, I don't even think I wanted a glass of water. I think I was just crying. To, I think I was just trying to be annoying. And you took me out of bed and you took me outside and you, you left me, you left me outside. You locked the door behind you. You left me to, to cry on the deck outside. And he said, he relates this story with an expectation of like, I don't even think, I don't think you're going to remember this. And there aren't a lot of, incidents that I can point to of other behavior like that. It's, it, it seems to have been relatively singular, but it's something that stuck with him mm. so completely and he never let go of it. And then of course, what sort of puts the final nail in the coffin on, on his relationship with Felice Bauer is that in 1917, he's, he wakes up in the middle of the night and he is just coughing blood. Yeah. The anecdote is recorded in his diary and it, it is pretty chilling. Soon after that, he's diagnosed with tuberculosis. Yep, and he uses that, mm -hmm. I mean, by and large, as the final excuse to avoid commitment with belief. Yep. You know, well, now I'm officially an invalid, and, and essentially, um, you know, any of the reasons why it would have been redeemable for the two of us to be together, for me to be with you, are now negated by the fact that I can't guarantee you any aspect of normalcy. Yes. So goodbye forever. Yeah. The thing is that obviously this is something of a put on because tuberculosis was not a death sentence, even right. in, in 1917. The way that he continues to conduct his life after this point leads me to believe that he expected himself to recover to some degree, even if his yeah. anxiety told him that he, he wouldn't. Yeah. The way that he conducted himself romantically after yeah. The end of this relationship would indicate that it was not a barrier towards finding intimacy. It was merely the excuse to end that level, that type of intimacy with that type of person. Yeah. Even before this, like really obsessed with his own health, mm -hmm. a blow to that, I think is pretty huge. Mm -hmm. He loved swimming and, and running and taking long walks in the country. He had a vigorous exercise routine that consisted of working out naked next to an open window because he was a great believer in uh, the power of fresh air and he would sleep with his windows open even in even in winter in Prague which is insane he was a teetotaler almost his entire life he was vegetarian for very long stretches mm -hmm. and also a proponent of this thing called Fletcherism, which is Fletcher was a was an associate of, of Dr. John Kellogg, who, you know, very famously believed that a boring diet, a bland diet would cure masturbation and sort of sexual dysfunction. Yes. And the sexual desire that inflamed that dysfunction. Yeah. And, and so Fletcher was a was a man closely associated with him who sort of yes, yes. And also you need to be chewing your food 40 times for every mouthful, like truly an insane amount. So you take all that together and it sort of hints at a belief that 
the corporal body is essentially the natural state of the human body is an unclean one that needs to be purged. So that's an idea that he has long before he's ever diagnosed with something is rotting inside of his body. Yeah. The psychological toll of that is pretty huge. Really? And and I could see, and I am, yes, I am psychologizing in this moment. No, I do yeah. not recommend it. I can imagine that in many ways being a an endorsement or seeming as though it is an endorsement of the intense pressure that he has felt externally for all this time. As almost feeling as though it's like, oh, well, you know, this is the result of the way that every external source or my own, you know, limitations or my own ill habits have reflected upon my life, right? I thought that I could escape it, but it's all manifesting. Yeah. So before we leave... Felice Bauer. She did eventually get married to to someone else. She survived the Holocaust. Yes, she did. She died in 1960. Yes. Five years before that, she sells Kafka's letters to his (laughs) publisher. And in 1967, the letters are published. And for a long time, she was only identified by the initial F or FB. And so there was rampant speculation about what her who who this mysterious woman was um and in 1967 when the letters are published the world which by this point is absolutely cuckoo for kafka just goes wild people lose their minds over these letters yeah and then she she dies in in 1960 yeah. Jumping back to the aftermath of that, Kafka starts taking time off of work to visit sanatoriums for his health, usually in warmer climates. And this basically forms his dating pattern for the next, for the last couple of years of his life is that he'll go to a sanatorium and flirt with some girl and then wind up in a relationship with them. So he's he's in a sanatorium and he meets a woman named Julie Voracek, who doesn't come up often when you talk about Kafka, probably because they did not exchange letters. Yeah. I, I also think that people are uncomfortable with the fact, even more so than with Felice Bauer, but he's not very kind to her in his in his diaries. He says that she belongs to the race of shop girls. She did eventually open a hat shop. It also may have been, interestingly, it might have been his most sexually realized relationship. Which makes one wonder if that was part of the reason that he spoke of her somewhat disparagingly, I wonder. I think you might be onto something because we we know kind of what his type was. He really liked prostitutes and he liked the idea specifically of meeting somebody by chance. He liked the game of like meeting somebody by chance and you you just happen to fall into bed together. It just sort of happens. Neither of you is is sort of thinking of it. So in a way, there's a sort of it's it's not unclean the way that like, you know, people who are thinking about sex all the time and are like, ooh, I want to, we're both thinking things about each other. It's just sort of, it's like falling out of a window, you know? Onto somebody else. <laughs> yeah. And it's a little hard to imagine Kafka like picking somebody up, but that seems to have been exactly what happened. Right. In his diary, he describes himself as like having 
charmed her. I think it's interesting when you don't get letters exchanged um, because he had his very last, I mean, not to jump too far ahead, but the very last woman that he was involved with romantically, that is, he was like provably romantically involved with, they didn't exchange letters either. Although the last woman, Dora Dumont, actually had some of his last work. Like, so their, yes. their intimacy was to the level that she had some of his work up until the 30s when it was confiscated by by the Nazis. But, you know, she was like the holder of this sort of intimate thing. But the fact that like, because we have no letters or because they exchange no letters or exchange fewer letters, we don't get that kind of level of contrast between the idea of just being charming and being able to not think about it and not categorize it as intimate and sort of falling into bed with somebody versus like making a commitment to somebody because then you have to worry about it. Yeah. He was almost resentful that he had to worry about this person now because yeah. there was an additional level of intimacy. Well, catastrophically, what does happen is that in 1919, they become engaged. Mm-hmm. And his parents do not approve. His father specifically does not approve. Seems to think that this is very misbegotten and probably something that he does out of fear. I don't know. It's so hard to talk about this relationship in a way because it's completely eclipsed by what happens next. Right. Which is that in February of the next year of 1920, he is written to by a young woman named Milena Piasenska. At the time, she was Milena Pollock. She was married to a man named Ernst Pollock. And she is a, a Czech journalist. She's not Jewish. And she's writing him for permission to translate a story called, a story of his, The, the Stoker into Czech. The Stoker is actually the first chapter of America, which he never finished, but he did publish the first chapter. They've actually met before. They've they've met Cafe that that he and, and Max Broad and their sort of literary circle of friends, including Franz Verfel, met at called Cafe Arco. He remembers very little about the meeting. He says he doesn't remember her face, only the way you walked through the tables in the cafe your face, your dress. She's also 23 years old and he's almost 37 years old. And that's very similar. That description is very similar to the way that he described his meeting with Felice Bauer. Yeah. It's elemental, the idea of hands and clothes and the particulars of one's appearance, the impression of an appearance rather than the person. The details that he uses are really interesting. People often talk about the difference between the letters to Felice and the letters to Melina, and this is kind of gross, so forgive me, but that he had to invent Felice Bauer, right? He sort of invents her with his with his language, which I in, in a way I think is true. He creates his impression of who she is. Whether or not that was a true impression is much harder to determine, but Melina is Melina. She's at 23 years old. She's already has a reputation as an absolute hellion who has casual sex and reads Dostoevsky and Newt Hampson and parades around in in men's clothing, making out with her girlfriends publicly. She studied medicine briefly. Her father is a is a dentist who mm-hmm. operated on soldiers with facial wounds during the war and and he sort of forced her to to help him with with his practice but she very quickly realizes that's not for her mm-hmm. and very quickly also i think at 17 or earlier she meets this man ernst pollock who's a who's a jew 
I keep saying I do keep saying Jew. I apologize. I am myself Jewish, so it doesn't hit my ear. I would have checked you otherwise. <laughs> but <laughs> thank you. Yeah, but I think you know the, there are there are fine lines and gray areas everywhere. But it, it's it's also the way often that that people are identified within these texts. So I'm sort of using the taxonomy of these the of the texts themselves. But I I, I, I apologize for for anybody. But Ernst Pollock is is in fact Jewish, which is bad news for her nationalistic anti-Semitic father. Yeah. And that led to their separate, that led to her and her father's separation of relations. And she eventually married Ernst Pollock in 1918. Her father tries to separate them by committing her to a psychiatric hospital. Mm -hmm. Then she turns 18 and is able to discharge herself um, and marry him. They move to Vienna and the relationship was incredibly fraught. He cheated on her relentlessly unapologetically like he expected her very much to tolerate it and they were also quite poor he seems he's just such an asshole (laughs) i haven't read a good word about the about the guy no nor have i and you know it was right after the war we're talking 1919 1920 when all of this was going down and she started to supplement their income as a translator yeah he basically wasn't making nearly enough money to support them and, and so she would do odd jobs she was like a luggage i love the detail that she was a luggage porter for a railway don't want to romanticize the circumstances under which that was possible but that is a a great ideological visual i guess Uh, yeah it really it's striking she's briefly a housekeeper and gets fired for stealing for stealing jewelry although i i've read her biography and she had some reason or other for for it wasn't just theft so she's yeah she starts writing articles for newspapers and she writes kafka and says yeah i really want to do a translation of this story Mm -hmm. and what's fascinating is she originally writes to him in german and he just he trusted her completely with his work Every once in a while, he'll offer a suggestion for a word or something. But other than that, he seems to have believed that she was doing his work in translation complete justice. And I think that it's important to emphasize how different German and Czech are. Czech belongs to a different family of languages entirely. It's it's a Slavic language. But she seems to have had this incredible gift, both for understanding his work and then translating it extremely faithfully into Czech. It's so interesting to me that connection because I don't I don't consider I don't believe I don't interpret Kafka as somebody who's precious with his work but somebody who's private with his work and so the idea of this kind of disclosure and openness doesn't provoke it doesn't seem exceptional but it does seem in the way that he describes his own work and the way that he describes his own writing i think he understood that he was a good writer but i think that he felt that writing was like purging bile from himself the equivalent of somebody else would be like holding your hair back as you throw up in the toilet yeah i I alluded earlier to i talked a little bit about his relationship with gustav yanush who Mm -hmm. tries several times during these sort of walks with Kafka to sort of get him to open up about his work. One anecdote is Kafka is sent the proofs for a publication of In the Penal Colony, which he mm-hmm. shows to to Gustav. Gustav says, you you must be really proud of, of this. This looks great. And Kafka immediately 
demurs and starts going off about how Max Broad is always taking his writing without permission and then surprising him with a written contract from the publisher. He says, it all ends in the publication of things which are entirely personal notes or diversions. Personal proofs of my human weakness are printed and even sold because my friends with Max Broad at their head have conceived the idea of making literature out of them, which is, you know, that's exactly the kind of thing that you expect to hear from Kafka. Oh my gosh. But then after a short pause, he says, of course, none of that is true. I'm just embarrassed of my own shamelessness. And I, of course, cooperate with getting myself published. Jesus Christ. Uh, Which is putting it mildly, right? Like he was very involved with setting, with choosing what font size (laughs) Meditations was going to be. In another anecdote, Gustav brings Kafka three stories of his that he's he's just spent a week's wages to have them bound, his own personal copy of some of Kafka's work bound in leather and embossed with gilt lettering. And, and Kafka is like horrified. He says his writing is only his own personal specter of horror without meaning and that it ought to be destroyed. And, and, and there's another letter when, you know, while they're sort of going back and forth with the judgment, you know, he clearly wants to turn very quickly wants to turn this like they start flirting almost immediately and at one point she sends him the manuscript the finished manuscript for the judgment and he says i was really disappointed when i opened your when i opened the package uh because i was expecting to hear from you and instead i i find this old voice from the grave yeah it's so interesting the way that he applies the same kind of like poor me charm to these different women at different stages of his life (laughs) yeah that's very true. I And I think that there's an element of that. But also, his career wasn't great at this moment, which is right. not to say that his career hadn't at other points in his life been going really well. Right. This is not like a Van Gogh situation. Right. No. You know, he wasn't the most popular member. Like, Max Broad was a much more popular writer than him. Yeah. And so was uh, Franz Verfall, who was significantly younger and significantly more popular. But he's known. He goes to Vienna and he reads in the penal colony. And and Rainier Maria uh, Rilke is in the audience and is like, "That was great. This is this guy's fucking amazing, right?" He's not. He's not a complete unknown. I think that's also another part of that is the shortness of his career as a result of his death. Yeah. Because he didn't really get going until he was about thirty. And yeah. at this point, he's in the in his mid-30s. So his career has not, he, it hasn't necessarily hit some sort of nadir. It's just, it's like a regular <laughs> person's writing career. You, right, you, know, right. you have input and output and notoriety and success, if you're lucky, any success. And even if you are successful, you're not necessarily hot, hot, hot all the time that you're writing. Right. It's really only the the sort of the the extremes of his own personal feeling that make it seem as if it is something more than like a very typical writing career. Right. And the shortness of one's life does create that kind of mystique. Absolutely. Because, I mean, if we're drawing the parallel to Dickens. Yeah. Yes. I mean, you know, Dickens had 20 more years on Kafka. Yeah. Approximately. But he had also, and he had a very different family structure, but he had very similar, you know, I, I mean, career highs and lows at the beginning of his career in the first 10 years. And so did Sam Clemens. You know what I mean? Mm, yeah. They have these people who have these really, they get going at a similar age around 30, you know, between 30 and 40. And they have these s- struggles either with notoriety or surrounding 
the output of work as being better or worse. And then they eventually either find a way to surmount that, the fickleness of the public, or they find another outlet for their creativity, much as Dickens did. Yeah. It's just a, when you die young, when your larynx explodes at the age of four, of 40, you don't have that kind of rounded out. There's all the retrospective. And I mean, I'm being very broad here, but I, in terms of this, I think that the retrospectives on Kafka that exist either because of his correspondence or because of the work that he did during the the, the 1910s, you know, into the early mm. 20s. If that's what you have as the collective of somebody's work, I don't know that there's any option but to speculate and sensationalize because there's no opportunity for retrospective. This is interesting to me, and I, I know I've tried to bring it up a couple of times, but yeah. when they when they start writing to each other, it's in it's in German. Obviously, she's appealing to him in German, and also kind of apologizing. Like I I I know I'm I'm clearly I don't know why I'm showing you exactly how good at German I am when I'm asking you to translate your work into into Czech but early on he asks that they actually switch to Czech mm-hmm. which is interesting because he's less he's less fluent in Czech but yeah. he says that he wants to know her in her entirety I mean the whole language thing is fascinating because at this point the country of Czechoslovakia is 2 years old the year previous Kafka's office has has gone from all German is the language of business, all business is done in German, to all business is done in Czech. Yeah. Also at the sanatorium that Kafka is staying in uh, Murano, Italy, Kafka is encountering a lot of anti-Semitic sentiment from the people around him that he describes in his diaries. The sort of the creation of this, of Czechoslovakia, has brought with it a very nationalistic identity that is starting to ferment all around Europe. Another interesting component of the fact that they're initially communicating in German is that within two months, so German has a formal first-person address and an informal you. And within two months, Milena is addressing Kafka informally as do. I don't know if you've encountered this, but I certainly have. His letters to, to Milena aren't as well regarded. They're not considered as interesting as his letters to Felice. I guess I've encountered that. But I tend to find that the language of the research that I've done is that they're less romantic, which I don't. Yeah. I don't buy that. I don't buy that at all. It's a different kind of approach. They're both intimate. Letters to Felice address these feelings of sort of inadequacy and, and questioning about being ready for marriage. But like at this point, when he's writing to Yasenska, he's writing to somebody who's already married. She's married to somebody else. She doesn't end this marriage until I think 1925. So she's yeah. married to somebody else. She's at least in a career or has an interest that is, you know, in the vein of his career and interest she's a creatively disposed person and she's much younger i think that's an interesting point about her also being a literary person she's an incredible writer Mm-hmm. Her articles and many of her articles and essays have survived. There's one on marriage that she published called The Devil at the Hearth, and it's really fascinating. She's more on an equal footing with him in a literary sense, and I think that in not having her letters, we're kind of missing more of the conversation in a way. Yeah. If that seems fair. Yeah, I, but I think that that's true of most of his correspondence. We have yeah. a list- his correspondence that exists but very few responses yeah well he destroyed all of his letters from felice and all of his letters from melina yeah 
So we only have his version of events and we can speculate about what those answers would be or we can, you know, speculate through other personal accounts from the other people. To me, at least, that's, it seems so monstrous that he would destroy their letters, maybe to get ahead of that a little bit. Like he was not thinking about posterity and these were letters that belonged in a very real sense to him. Oh, I can totally imagine the idea of destroying something that feels so emotional. It's only in the context of this world where we have so much access to this guy's brain. Frankly, almost ridiculous and, and maybe more than any other writer of this time period. Partially, I think, because people are so obsessed with his psychology. Yeah, obsessed about the idea of his... That's so interesting yeah. to me. Retrospectives, it's like the idea of somebody's psychology versus actually psychologizing somebody. I don't know. Well, this is interesting because Kafka took a lot of cues from Dostoevsky. I think he was a big reader of Dostoevsky. And I was thinking particularly about the double. There's an argument to be made that that it is a hallucination, that he's seeing this doppelganger and, and that it's not really happening. There is at least, if it's not explicit in the text, it's certainly been argued in scholarship. The psychological reality is the character is sort of imposing his psychological reality on the story in a way. And what Kafka does is takes away the middleman and squares the circle and says, no, the psychological reality of the character is the reality. There's no speculation about whether Gregor Samsa actually becomes a giant bug. He is a giant bug. Yeah, perception is narrative, and narrative is reality. It's a very interesting extension of that form, that the way that expressionism started versus the way that it not ended, but the way that it developed. So, summer of 1920, she somehow manages to convince him to come visit her in Vienna. And I say somehow because it, it takes a lot of doing. Mm-hmm. Much like the way that Felice tried to tried and tried to get him to come to Berlin, he changes his mind about going to Vienna four or five times. And she sort of illuminates the reasons why it was difficult in this letter to Max Broad, where, where she says he just he couldn't ask for time off from work. He literally couldn't bring himself to say to his boss, hey, can I take some time off of work? Because the idea of, the idea would never occur to him to lie to his boss for the reason, which he would have to do. So relatable. It is very relatable. It's something that I encounter, that I certainly have in, encountered in my, in my daily life on a regular basis of like, how do I make an excuse to this person i don't know how to connect the dots on that but they finally he he agrees and they they spend four days together in vienna from everything in his letters they were really happy together during yeah. that time they actually get along it turns out that they get along really well when they're writing together when they're writing to each other and turns out that they get along very well in person as well yeah. By the way, he's been engaged to Julie the entire time. That engagement is still ongoing, and yeah. she has the expectation that they will be married. Everyone has the expectation that they will be married, including Kafka and including Milena. And it's only after this trip that he confronts Julie and attempts to break off the relationship. I think the possibility of life with Milena made him realize that this was not what he what, what he actually wanted. He can't do it himself. He tries to break things off over the course of a couple of days, but basically it seems like he, he wanted her to end things. She finally sort of gets some kind of a hint, and she says, look, if you, if you want to end things, that's fine, but you're 
going to have to do it. You're going to have to actually tell me that this is over. It's all very sordid. She insists on writing to Milena, and he agrees, which is weird. That I did not know. Yeah, it's strange. We know that she wrote to her because we have Kafka's letter to Milena about how she should reply. So they they, they have one more meeting Mm -hmm. um, in Gmund between Czechoslovakia and Austria. And that one doesn't, it doesn't go as well. Yeah, it's like a one day thing. So there's a letter from him just before they meet. Basically what seems to have happened was that he started to get really uncomfortable with the fact that after Julie is gone from the picture and Ernst is still there, he becomes very uncomfortable with that. And she was not ready at, you know, 23 years old to confront the fact that her marriage was a failure. Yeah. And she wouldn't be able to confront it for another five years. This letter that he writes her on on August 13th is is very sad. He says, I did not misunderstand you concerning your husband. You keep pouring the whole mystery of your indestructible unity, this rich, inexhaustible mystery, into worrying about his boots. There's something about it which tortures me. I don't know exactly what. It's really very simple. If you were to leave him, he'll either live with another woman or move into a boarding house and his boots will be polished better than they are now. This is silly and not silly. I don't know what it is about these remarks that causes me such pain. Maybe you know. That's also very relatable. He seems to have let go of a lot of his neuroticism by this time, but I'm not sure if that's right. I think that at this time, the reality of his diagnosis Mm -hmm. is rapidly catching up to him because he... Basically, in 1921, he asks her to stop writing to him. And she begins writing to Max Broad, sort of asking him for advice. It's just very, very sad. It is very sad. I do want to say as well, as we get sort of, we're nearing the the end of Kafka's time, you know, Kafka's own timeline. There's one more woman. I think it is also the reflective of their connection that they do begin to exchange letters again a couple of years later. And in fact, Kafka and Trust, we've talked about how Dora Demont, who's the final woman, had some of Kafka's work uh, after he died, but that he entrusts to Milena some of his writing, really his personal correspondence, his diary at the end of his life. So even though they were not, their relationship was less intimate, I think the impression that she left upon him was significant because he could not completely, you know, disconnect from this relationship and neither of them wanted to. And the fact that he would leave her with something that is so intimate in and of itself is, I think, very significant that he would trust. He gave her, I think it's notable that he, he, we don't actually have his diaries from 1920 because he gave all of them to her Mm -hmm. from, from 19, I believe from 1920 to 1921. She is one of the few people who during his life, he showed his letter, his, uh, his letter to his father. But yeah, she continues to write to him occasionally, postcards and things, she even visited she visited him at his parents' house in, in Prague, but at that time, you know, he's very sick and it's more of a sort of a sick room visit. Mm-hmm. She wrote his obituary and it's one of the most moving things that I've that I've ever read. It's incredibly moving. If you take one thing from this, find Milena, the tragic story of Kafka's great love by Marguerite Buber Newman. It's a biography of her, and she had an incredible life up till that point, up to the point where she was Kafka's girlfriend, and then had an incredible life up to the point where she was murdered by the Nazis. And I would not be able to live with myself if I didn't share some quick bullet points about the rest of her life. So she does eventually divorce Ernst Pollock, 
thank fucking God, becomes again Milena Yasenska. Um, in her 30s, she becomes attracted to communism and then very quickly abandons her sympathies in light of Stalin's regime. Uh, she continues working as a journalist. When the Nazis occupy Czechoslovakia, she takes it upon herself to give them as much trouble as she possibly can. She writes these scathingly satirical art, satirical articles making fun of them. And because of the, the fact that they are written in, in Czech, which the Germans have an imperfect understanding of, and because of the fact that she's a woman, the satirical edge is completely, almost completely lost on the occupying Germans. Their press office is overseen by a man named Herr von Vollmer, with whom she has this bizarre kind of love-hate relationship where he like summons her to his office once a week and they have these long arguments. She writes this article called Soldaten wohnen auf den Kanonen, where she claims that German songs are more soldierly than their Czech counterparts, but because the Germans are more warlike. And when she's searching for an appropriately like for like a, a good a good bloodthirsty song for the article, a friend of hers recommends that she use the canon song from the Three Penny Opera, where a pair of soldiers are boasting about cannibalizing their enemies. And von Vollmer is like completely incensed and he calls her to his office and he's like, have you ever, you cannot have ever possibly heard actual German soldiers singing this song. Are you aware that it was written by um, the communist playwright Bertolt Brecht? And she just plays completely dumb and, and says, no, I, I don't remember where I heard it, but I, you know, I never doubted that it was a German soldier song because it, it sounded so German and uh, it sounded so soldierly. And he gets so mad that she throws a pencil in his face or that, that he throws a pencil in her face. I love that. I know. It's very demonstrative of just her personality, which she's this, she's incredibly heroic, but incautious. Like her apartment becomes a meeting place for Czech dissidents. Yeah. I mean, she, let's be clear. She did join the resistance. Active member of the resistance. She yeah. makes it a point of appearing on the street with her Jewish friends. Mm-hmm. It's reported that Polish Jews are being forced to wear yellow stars, and she sews a Star of David onto her own clothing and mm -hmm. wears it around. You know, she encouraged everyone around her, including her lover at the time, to, to emigrate and refused to leave herself. She seems to have taken it as a personal duty to, to stay. She's, you know, brought in for interrogation and was first arrested in 1939 and sent to a prison in Prague and then eventually Ravensbrück where she met her biographer Marguerite then dies of a lung infection. She actually had tuberculosis as well and it's one of the things that she and, and Kafka correspond about early on in their relationship yeah. that they sort of have this shared diagnosis. Anyway I, I just wanted to say a little bit a little bit more about her. Back to you know 19... I can't remember when she meets or when uh, when he meets Dora Diamond, it's a little while later. I, I think it's in 1923. Yeah, I think that's right. He's staying, you know, at another sanatorium at a seaside resort with his, his sister, Ellie, and her children. Dora works for a charity home, a sort of home for, for children that's on holiday there. Kafka at this time was 40, and he was suffering from the very last final stages of his terminal tuberculosis. But it appears to have been a somewhat sudden 
unexpected love affair. It's really fascinating. It really sadly doesn't get enough attention. They, I mean, they wanted to move in together. They made plans to move to Berlin together. Mm -hmm. um, and Kafka actually did move to Berlin. He returned yes. to Prague and he moved to Berlin <laughs> and moved in with Dora for ultimately being hospitalized again, basically his death. But when he went to his final hospice place and Dora went with him and she was there when he died in 1924. The detail always strikes me that at the end, Kafka was no longer able to talk mm -hmm. and was resorting to writing down what he needed to communicate, like handing it off to just these like little pieces of himself, handing them off to, to Dora or to Max. I, I, I don't know why, but it's, it's just such a, it's such an image. And she got a lot of flack apparently in some critical circles that she was the one who like indulged Kafka's request to burn correspondence and people got mad at her. So, I mean, I, I somewhat ironically, not really ironically, but I mean, obviously there were letters of correspondence between them that are no longer extant really because she did destroy some stuff, but some stuff she kept. What she did keep was stolen as many other of Kafka's works were during the, the mid-30s by the Gestapo. Yeah, it's really fascinating to me the entitlement that people feel to the personal correspondence of a man who, if he was not dead already, would have died of embarrassment and shock at the idea. I know, I know. It's so interesting. That's kind of like a limp wiener thing to say, but I mean, it, it is. I feel, I think the thing about personal correspondence, it's collected and distributed by intimate friends and family. I can understand and I can empathize with that desire to maintain and to sort of correct the legacy of somebody in a way that you feel would do them better service or provide a better insight or sort of preserve the memory of them as you, the person who knew them well, remembers them. I can, I, I can, I can totally empathize with that. But so also can I empathize with people who know somebody so well actively in their life that they choose to take those requests seriously, that they're not thinking about a legacy. They're thinking about the person that they love. And yeah. I think here we see more than any other time at the end of Kafka's life, this discord, this uh, schism in that sort of collective intimacy between Rod and Dora. It becomes a real question at the end of a person's life, particularly writers, who does their legacy belong to? In publishing his biography, Max Broad kind of puts the stamp on things. Yeah. And really tries to take ownership. And also, I think, too, in, in publishing his work is almost taking that authority on his own shoulders and saying, and maybe this is uncharitable, but parts of his biography read to me like somebody who is making up writing one as an excuse to sort of steer the conversation towards what he wants to talk, what he's very interested in talking about, which is at that time, Zionism and, and what he thinks that Kafka's work really means. That brings me to mind. The thing that I've noticed about sort of doing all this research at once was that I, I also sort of notice in that in that observation that you just made and in, in my own peripherally, I see a distinct difference between Kafka's relationship with Max Brod and all of the other chronicled intimate relationships in his life. And it makes me sort of wonder constantly how Kafka negotiated a sense of intimacy and the idea of it throughout his life, uh, through his illness, through his successes, through his moments of both illness and sort of non-notoriety as a writer and that Max was the constant in all of this but does the fact that their their friendship remains somewhat constant was that what gave that sense of entitlement I think so and I think also 
there's a sense of I cared about this guy when nobody else gave a shit. Mm-hmm. I did all the work to get him get him published. And I'm going to take my goddamn credit. In some senses, that's fair, because we wouldn't have a lot of his work without that sort of pressure that he exerted, in a way, and encouragement that he gave him. I don't want to characterize Max Broad entirely as a, as a person who was self-interested, because I think that it really comes from a place of love and wanting to share, and also feeling like, I think this guy's really special, and I want to share... Everybody thinks that I'm hot shit, but like, to me, wait till you hear this. Like, this is the good shit. Yeah. This is the stuff that I think is really interesting. And he was right. Yeah. I mean, he really was. I think we know enough to want to then create our own ideology. With the, and there's nothing wrong with that. But like, you yeah. know, we spent like, what, two hours now talking about sort of the intricacies of like what everything means. and And all the while saying like, that's not necessarily what we're interested in but I mean to a degree it is because you know our feelings about Kafka and our feelings about the intimacy and the the sort of perils of intimacy that he experienced are empathetic because we know enough to place context on these things there's another anecdote from conversations with Kafka Gustav is pointing out to Kafka that Kafka and Samsa Gregor Samsa is the protagonist from the metamorphosis and, he, and he's he's saying well Look, Kafka has the same number of letters as Samsa and the consonants and the vowels fall into the into the same positions and Kafka stops him and and says it's not a cryptogram. Samsa is not merely Kafka and nothing else. The metamorphosis is not a confession, although it is in a certain sense an indiscretion. Is it perhaps delicate and discreet to talk about the bugs in one's own family? I love that. I, I do too. And I think it perfectly captures the sense of this person who brought his entire being to bear on his writing, whose writing served as a sort of fulcrum on which he could weigh his own insecurities about the world. But that wasn't, he had this life outside of it. Yeah, and I think there's something to really fiercely protect and empathize with inherently about somebody who really was quite open and willing to communicate their thoughts and their impressions and their psychology with you as long as they could do so through that style of imagery and through that style of figurative grotesquerie. But then what that meant inherently at the time was that the letters, the things that were personal, the personal correspondence was not up for public consumption. So you were getting so much of the same thing, so much of these thoughts and musings through this, you know, sort of more equally intimate but much more coded way of reading these thoughts. Yes. I wrote you the story about what I'm feeling about the, you know, the transformativity of, I don't know, the, about the insecurity of transformativity. Like, the guy turns into a bug. Like, what more do you want? <laughs> yeah. Very early in his correspondence with Felice, she tries to tell him what books he's reading or she's reading. And, and he says, I, I don't want to, I'm terribly jealous of anyone who you say you're reading who isn't me. <laughs> here's here's the story that I just that I just finished. R read it and, and tell me what you think. And then and then every letter after that he says, you, you still haven't told me what you thought of the story that I that I, I wrote. Please get back to me about uh, it's probably not any good. 
but I just want to know what you think. You know, there's a quote that I wanted to share from a New York Times article that is so, that brings it, that I had a full circle article that I did share with you in my notes that is so related to that, that I'm so excited yes. that we're both on the same page. So this is from Morris Dixon, a 1973 article about sort of the, sort of a retrospective on, on Kafka's letters, Kafka's correspondence. And it, it brings it back. He's talking about at the end of Kafka's life. When Kafka met Dora Diamant in 1923, there was no thought of letters, no barrier in illness. He escaped from Prague and his family, went to live with her in Berlin, and even wrote to her father, a pious Jew, asking for permission to marry. In a truly Kafka-esque turn, the father passed the letter on to his rabbi, who simply said no, without explanation. Not long afterward, Kafka was dead, but not without a taste of the felicity and communion he had never achieved with Felice Bauer. Everything about that... <laughs> <laughs> both contradicts and enforces all of the ideas that have been brought up about Kafka's personal life. Yes. <laughs> and the idea, but I do think, you know, it's not that there was no thought of letters. It's not that there wasn't a barrier in illness. It's not that he was finally able, ever, able to live. And I don't know that it's Kafka-esque that her family didn't want to take a chance on a terminally ill, notorious dude who was 15 years older. <laughs> Then Dora, I don't think that there's anything particularly Kafka-esque about that, nor was it, nor was it a contributor in any way to their not being able to be together through the end of Kafka's life. So I don't know that there's anything Kafka-esque, but I feel that this what this author is doing quite well is sort of highlighting the absurdity of this contrast between like a man is different at different points of his life. And in his early 30s, when he's talking to this woman, trying to be intimate, he's so worried about his career and he's so worried and focused on his health and his place in the world and whether or not he's ready to make a commitment and whether or not he's uh, worthy, you know, his, his work and his medal are worthy of somebody that he considers to be, you know, entirely efficient and wholesome. If he doesn't feel efficient, nor does he feel wholesome. Whereas, you know, when you're spending your time mostly in and out of hospitals and hospice at the age of 40, and you've just found somebody who you can trust with your life, the priorities change, man. To analyze oneself and one's correspondence without the idea of any kind of continuity, to, uh, to analyze Kafka's personal correspondence as though he is merely and and first and foremost and forever a literary figure is a very strange way to do things. <laughs> it's it's weird. Highlights this. What you were talking about is the idea of this legacy and people want you to see, you know, when people leave somebody's personal life open to interpretation, what people interpret is entirely subjective which is kind of the point, but also a frustration, a point of frustration. And we can see that's why some people were frustrated with Dora for not sharing, making the material available. That's why some people are frustrated with Max Broad for sharing so much. That's why people are frustrated with the outcome of these letters, because they're not satisfied with the type of, you know, they're not, it's not the outcome that they would desire from this kind of person, right? That's wonderfully put. Is it? <laughs> yeah, I think so. 
Oh, well, that's nice. I think at this point, you know, we've reached the end of Kafka's natural life, but I want to sort of put it to you as the originator of this interesting topic that I'm so grateful to have been able to hear from you about and discuss. Like, is there any sort of, are there any final thoughts or anything beside the biography of Milena Yasenska by Marguerite Buber-Newman? Anything else that you would either like to share with our audience or leave with them upon further consideration if they'd like to do more research? There's a great compilation of all of the things that were published in Kafka's own lifetime. It's a collection called Metamorphosis and Other Stories. The translation is by Michael Hoffman, and it's a a Penguin Classics. It's great and a very approachable way to sort of dip into Kafka's work if you haven't already. After that, highly recommend seeking out the Orson Welles version of The Trial starring Anthony Perkins. It's such a great film and probably the best that anyone has ever done Kafka on film. Thank you, by the way, for bringing me on here to talk about this. This is such a particular interest of mine. I I wanted to make one final offering, and it's a quote from A Hunger Artist, which is one of my favorite stories of Kafka's. He wrote this close to the end. I think it taps into a lot of his own feeling as a writer, and it's It's about a sort of circus performer whose specialty is starving himself. At this point, he's been forgotten. By the way, I should say, it's really worth it to look for this story as read by the German singer Lottie Lenya. They prodded the straw with poles and found the hunger artist there. Are you still starving? asked the overseer. When are you finally going to stop? Please forgive me, all of you, whispered the hunger artist. Only the overseer, pressing his ears to the bar, could hear him. Of course, said the overseer, and tapped his finger against his brow to indicate the condition of the hunger artist to the staff. We forgive you. I always wanted you to admire my starving, said the hunger artist. We do admire it, said the overseer, placatingly. But you're not to admire it, said the hunger artist. All right, then we don't admire it, said the overseer. Why should we not admire it? Because I have to starve. I can't do anything else, said the hunger artist. Well, take a look at that, said the overseer. And why can't you do anything else? Because, said the hunger artist, and he raised his little head fractionally, and with his lips puckered as if in a kiss, he spoke directly into the overseer's ear so that none of his words were lost. Because I couldn't find any food I liked. If I had found any, believe me, I wouldn't have made any fuss, and I would have eaten to my heart's content, just like you or anyone else. Those were his last words, but even in his broken eyes, there was the firm, if no longer proud conviction, that he would go on starving. That's very beautiful. I think a really excellent way to tie up and reflect upon the fact that something doesn't need to be directly uh, relevant to one's life in order to be deeply intimate. Nor need we reflect only on the known and intimate parts of somebody's life if they're a public figure in order to feel as though we understand or that we are getting as much of an understanding as we need in order to empathize and reflect upon somebody's body of work. This is also an opportunity for me to thank you, um, not only for being my best friend, but for being my first guest on this program. And I, I, for what I'm sure is not the last time you will be a guest on this program, as you have many interests that are very good. <laughs> but I also want to give you this opportunity if you want to like plug 
anything else that you want to plug. You've made recommendations that are specific to this episode, but if you want to yes. plug any other thing, please do. I, I'm sure like a lot of other people don't have a lot of other things going on right now. So I, I don't know that I have that I have anything to plug at the moment. Oh, other than uh, my fiance, my lovely fiance has a podcast as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's called One Fear and it is a podcast about what people are afraid of. Uh, the first episode is about ornithophobia. Uh, she interviews a friend of hers who's afraid of birds and it's really insightful and and smart and funny and definitely worth checking out excellent thank you for that one fear podcast with host christine key well i also don't have too much going on um other than this podcast i also will say i host another podcast one track of which has been laid with my friend yvette del toro who's the casting associate for city light cedar company in san jose and we have a podcast together in which we discuss episodes of telenovelas that we used to watch as kids and we're re-watching them so that is called chingona cast and that is on the witches brew podcast network as is this so please feel free to check out the network on instagram and facebook for any episodes and hosts and also please check out One Fear, podcast hosted by Christine. Adam McGill, thank you. Melinda Marks, thank you. I love you very much, and I look forward to not only taking your recommendations on media, but also talking to you again very soon. Okay, well, this has been Who Cares? And we have been for always and for eternity. Melinda Marks and guest Adam McGill, thank you.